The following production is part of the Play Some Video Games Podcast Network. Welcome to Board with Video Games, the gaming podcast that strives for the right balance of coverage for games you play on your table and on your television. You can think of us as the Harris and Hubert of gaming podcasts. We're a proud member of the PSVG Podcast Network and thrilled to be part of the Dice Tower Network as well. I am one of your hosts, Kyle, and joining me on this co-op adventure, the guy who is never a bear to be around, Josh, how are you doing this evening? Well, before I say how I'm doing, you always... Every once in a while, you really mess me up with the intro. I have no frame of reference uh, to Harris, Hubert, and only because you spelled bear uh, the right way do I know there's an animal involved. <laughs> okay, well, you know, maybe our guests will be able to help us out. If not, that's okay. I will talk about where the, the inspiration for this came from. But while Harris and Hubert get into their fair share of hijinks, it would not have been complete without Hamish, and filling in that role for us this week is none other than game designer Joseph Z. Chen. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I hope Hamish is the the better of the three, maybe. I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know the reference either. Um, but I guess we'll all learn something today. It would be interesting if we brought guests on the show and made them be the the worst out of the three people <laughs> mentioned. That would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, usually the the guest is the person who gets the the role of honor. And just to clear it up, I was hoping the bear reference would help because this is a movie that is an animated movie that has bears in it, but you don't expect there to be bears in it. <laughs> I was going to say The Revenant, but you said animated. No. <laughs> no. Uh, those are the triplet brothers from the Disney Pixar movie Brave. Oh. Yeah, that is their names, which I didn't know. I looked. I had to look it up because I was trying to think of tree, a good trio to go with, so I had to look it up, and that's, that is the name of the three brothers. It's like the, it's like the ghost from Pac-Man. It's like, what, Inky, Blinky, and then Nod. The, the odd third one. Yeah, Inky, so, Blinky, think, and Nod. I think it's Clyde, isn't it? Is it Clyde? Yeah. Why do I think Nod? <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> it's a fairy tale, right? It is Clyde. You're right. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Joseph, we're really thrilled to have you on the show tonight. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners? Tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, so, yeah, um, I am the designer publisher and the i guess artist as well for a game called fantastic factories that launched on kickstarter last year we just recently fulfilled we raised uh over one hundred sixty thousand and uh dollars and and over four thousand backers and so it's been a it's been a really exciting journey to finally get it into people's hands and uh and been hearing people t- talk about their experiences and it's been it's been a wild ride awesome well we're really thrilled to have you with us on the show and so thankful that you have you know agreed to do the entire show with us and it's quite the commitment we'll see if you regret <laughs> it when we're done uh but hopefully it's going to be a great experience for you well for what it's worth i'm having a good time so far well excellent <laughs> set the bar there's, there's still time for this to go downhill though <laughs> yes <laughs> 
All right. Well, we'll get a little housekeeping out of the way and then jump into the show proper. So as always, thanks so much for joining us this week. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggested topics, hit us up at Board with VG on Twitter or check out all the awesome posts over on the Instagram, also Board with VG. We're a proud part to play some video games and PSVG is on Patreon. We're absolutely thrilled with the support you have given us there thus far. And if you'd like to monetarily support what we do, you can find us there at patreon.com slash PSVG. But the most important thing is just that you listen and maybe share our show with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. We're also a member of the Dice Tower Podcast Network. So if you enjoy our conversations about board games and would like to dive deeper into that world, we encourage you to check out the Dice Tower Podcast as well as all the other members of the network. No matter what type of board games you enjoy, there's a podcast on the network that is right for you. So enough of the housekeeping stuff. Joseph, as our guest, we'll let you go first. What have you been playing on your tabletop, sir? Well, uh, a number of things. Uh, I'll kind of go over. Luckily, I keep track of all my plays through BG stats. Otherwise, I would never remember. <laughs> um, but just today, I was playing um, Town Builder Kuverdin by Eric Rao from First Fish Games. And also um, Tussie Mussie from, uh, by uh, Elizabeth Hargrave from Button Shy. Um, nice 18-card nice game. And then also, I- I've gotten back into uh, Magic playing Commander specifically. Um, oh. and then, and then, yeah, it's a, it's a deep, deep hole to dive into. Uh, and then also point salad from AEG and flyout games. And also, uh, I, but I think it was, was about a month ago. So, uh, I played a game called team three. I don't know if you've heard of this one, but no. it's, it's, it's a really interesting concept where you have a team of three people. So it's based off like, um, the, the monkeys, like see no evil, speak no evil, like, um, and so you have a team of three. One person is the architect, and they have a card that has this 3D configuration of these like uh, Tetris blocks that they that you're supposed to build as a team, but only the architect can see what you're supposed to be building, and the architect can't talk. Architect then has to direct a second team member uh, using only hand motions <laughs> what to do. Uh, the second team member uh, then communicates interprets that uh instruction to the third team member who can't see anything but they are the only person who is allowed to touch the blocks wow so you've got this crazy like three person team one person can't see anything one person can't touch anything one person can't say anything and together you have to collectively try to build this 3d structure and arrange it so it's a lot of crazy fun uh and gets uh and there's different difficulties as well that kind of scale up is it like a is it a competitive game as well, or is it just three people playing the game? It's um, from what I understand, it's cooperative, and typically, like when you complete it, you kind of rotate around Who's the table what? who who gets different roles. Cool. I I can totally imagine you could play competitively with like uh, if you had two sets of the game. Yeah, you could have like a three v three. That'd be kind of cool. Who can finish it faster? Yeah, that's what I was imagining. Like a group, like nine people sitting down at a table three groups going at a time trying to figure this game out it sounds really cool i'm always i'm always looking for games like for me like dexterity games are relatively new so any kind of game that um breaks that mold of what we know as like a typical board game is always exciting to me so that sounds really cool 
quick question. So we talked about Tussie Mussie a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I think, on the podcast. Uh, what were your impressions of it? What are your thoughts on Tussie Mussie? Obviously, Elizabeth Hargrave getting a lot of recognition this year due to Wigspan. But what did you think of the small little game from Button Shy? It's, uh, well, when I heard it was um, uh, I Split You Choose, like that that mechanic, I feel like is really underutilizing games. It's, it creates this, it's, it's always got this kind of mind game aspect. So like the, in, in Tussie Mussie specific, specifically, you draw two cards, you put one face up and one face down, and you try to collect these flowers to score points. They interact in different ways. And so I, I really like that aspect where like, you know that a cert- this person wants red roses or red flowers. And so you show them one face up and then you hide one face down. And it, it's this crazy mind game, you know, like you, it's that person, if my opponent trying to get me to pick the face down card because uh, they they are trying to trick me into thinking that it's a more valuable card because but they're presenting me the obvious choice. So I, I think that's a really cool kind of tension. Um, and I think games with those mind game elements have a lot of replayability because it just differs depending on who you're playing with. Um, so far, I've only been playing it with two players, and I suspect that's probably the best player count because you really get to like hone in on what people are trying to collect. And to be honest, you can only do so much of 18 cards. So yeah. I, the it's... It's one of those games I think can feel very chaotic, but with repeated plays, you can really get into like kind of the meta game of it. Um, and I'm excited to play at, at two players. Um, I haven't tried it at three or four. I suspect at four it may get a little chaotic, but uh, so far I've been enjoying it quite a bit. Nice, Kylie. Awesome. Are you going to ask about magic? I am going to. I'm going to get there too. <laughs> uh, really quick uh, on Tussie Mussie. Still, one thing my partner and I have run into, and Joseph, just so you know, the running joke on the show uh, and it's not really a joke is that my wife beats me at every game we play and when it comes to board games she pretty <laughs> much wins all the time but the one thing that i have discovered with tussie mussie when we played it and we kind of have played it a bit since i talked about it on the show initially i feel like and maybe it's just because we know each other so well whoever seems to go first who gets to see both of the cards on that first draw tends to feel like they have an advantage because they know, you know, exactly, they have 100% information, where potentially the other player only has 50% information. So going then into that next hand, they still have less info mm-hmm. than what the first player does. And I think we've run into, it seems that the person who goes first tends to win more often in our games. Hmm. Is that, have you experienced that at all, or am I just I, off my rocker? <clears throat> I haven't played it enough, but my sense is that, yeah, that could definitely be the case, because... Oftentimes, the first card of each round really sets the tone because you're like, mm-hmm. first card says you get a point for every red flower. Now you know you can always tempt them with a red flower, uh, or you can keep it keep that away from them. So like that first card tends to be much more important, I think. And so with three yeah. rounds and two players, I guess one player gets to go twice first. Or sorry, gets to go uh, first twice. So yeah, yeah I could, and like I yeah. And like I said, it could totally be, I just need to change my strategy more that I'm too locked into what I do. But that's something that uh, we ran into a bit. So next question, Uh, you talked about playing commander. I am a, uh, I don't want to say, I hate using (laughs) when places use terms like recovering and things like that when talking about (laughs) games I used to play a lot, because I, I think that can be potentially hazardous to actual very critical things that you recover from. But I'm a person who used to play a lot of Magic the Gathering. Commander was definitely probably 
my favorite format, but I, I have stopped playing Magic, but still get tempted regularly to go back to it. Who is your commander and why specifically this variant are are you into? So I I think I have four commanders right now. I recently retired a couple because they were I have a particular style I like to play, but we can go into that a little bit more later. But I right now I'm running uh Tesa Orzov Scion, like the original Tesa Black White. Uh also Mono Green Omnath and um Gisa and Giralf, the black white zombie tribal. And then uh what's my fourth one? Oh, I I have a a blue black mill deck um with uh the the Theros God, I forget what his name is. I should know the name of my commanders, but uh uh that one I might need to tweak a little bit because I definitely got hated out real quickly. I popped down a mesmeric orb on like turn two and uh everyone just <laughs> just wailed on me until I died, so Oh gosh. But uh white commander, I guess um I guess I don't play enough to feel like I'm I can keep up with the competitive scene, you know? And I have mm-hmm. like all these random cards. I, I feel like for me, like deck construction is a very important part of magic for my at least my for my specific experience. And like having a hundred card singleton format is like that kind of the ultimate expression of like deck building and lets me kind of use those weird janky cards that you otherwise can't so it's like a really open creative kind of format i think and as long as you can find a play group that kind of has the similar parallel similar kind of um principles of play then you can really have a good time i think and luckily i i found a group like that and that's kind of what has brought me back into it um i think just you know, everyone kind of goes in and out of magic. I think this last time I, I've been playing now for maybe six, like four to six months now. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I had a Savra Queen of the Golgari was my commander, and basically what she did is if you sacrifice a black creature and pay two life, each other character has to or each other player has to sacrifice a creature, um, and if you sacrifice a green creature, you gain two life. So for me, basically all my creatures were green and black, and all of them had hit the graveyard effects that most of them got brought back. Uh, Yeah, it was great. I went so far as I had uh, commissioned a full art Savra that I had when I was running my (laughs) deck. Like I was so into it. I loved it so much, and I really want to get back to it. Mark Rosewater actually mentioned recently that there are analytics that show that Commander actually might be the most popular magic format, period. Yeah, I, that's what I've heard as well. But at the same time, I believe that he also mentioned that Commander is not the majority either. So it's the most popular, but it's far from being the majority format. Either. So yeah. there's still a lot of formats that people like to play and, and consider. But uh, it's really cool that they're starting to really lean into it. Because when I first started playing Commander, it, was, it wasn't an officially endorsed uh, format at the time. Did you play back in the day when it was called EDH? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was great stuff. Any other board games you want to talk about, sir? Uh, No, I mean, I, there's a, been a bunch, but, uh, you know, I could, you, if you let me go, I, I, I could talk forever. So I think I think it might be best to, uh, to <laughs> hear what you guys are playing. Awesome. Josh, what have you been playing on your tabletop? Well, yesterday was our Friendsgiving uh, event. So 
We played some games. Uh, I played Citadels for the first time. Uh, we played Joking Hazard because we needed a, a break in between games. Um, and coincidentally enough, I was one of those backers of Fantastic Factories. Uh, so uh, we we started with Fantastic Factories. Um, we played a three-player game because the chef was cooking. So he just kind of came in periodically and, and checked in. So <laughs> I think Joseph listened to the episode where I <laughs> thought I was going to be playing Fantastic Factories. And we lost power, which was two weeks ago. Um, which is not very common here. So it was a little frustrating to get the game set up and ready to go. However, we finally got it to the table. Um, I'm actually glad I played with three players. Um, not that I would, not that I don't think two players would be a good experience, but um, something that you might not know, Joseph, is like uh, mostly Kyle and I. We pretty much just, for the most part, play with our significant others, and there's. We're, I I don't want to speak for Kyle. For me, like the experience playing with my wife is great. Um, but we both have our same frustrations and our similar play styles, so it's nice to add more mix to games, I guess is what I want to say. Um, and this was a game that... This is a game that uh, I'm not saying that I enjoyed it because you're here. <laughs> but um, it was great. And, and leading up to it, um, I told Kyle... I mean, f- first we had a listener reach out to us way back when we started chatting on Twitter, like what, six months ago about getting you on the show. And then I would see people like James Hudson or Jamie Stegmeier or the Funkhausers posting about how awesome this game is and that they're playing it and they love the mechanics. And I I couldn't wait for the game to show up. Um, So a a weird compliment I want to give you first, and I don't know if this was your idea or not. Um, there's only one other game I experienced this, and I think it was Wasteland uh, Exp- Express Delivery Service, where it like specifically says on the cutouts, don't throw these away. And you lift up your game tray and you put the cardboard cutouts underneath it so your game sits like, for like the OCD people, nice and flush with the top of the box. So I really, <laughs> that's a small little thing for me, but I really appreciate that aesthetic part. Um, and the insert is great inside the box as well. I like a game that um, comes with some extra Ziploc baggies and uh, gives you the option to, to separate what you want. But that's me talking about the components. <laughs> this is not well, a Dice Tower review. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't I can't take full credit for uh, the, the chipboard comment, I think. I believe I actually got that first from um, Grim Forest. From oh yeah, yeah. James Hudson's game, uh, uh, Druid City Games. So he did that, I believe, in in his box, and that inspired me to do the same thing. Because, like, as a publisher, it's kind of crazy to think about, like, how do you get the insert flush? Because with the cards insert, sorry, the wells for the cards, if there's a gap between the top of the insert and the lid, the cards will slide around everywhere. Yeah. So it's like one of those weird things that like you only ever think about when you're a publisher. You're like, wait, how does this physically work? It doesn't make any sense. And you explore a few different options, and we ended up going with the put the the, the chipboard underneath the insert. Nice. 
Uh, so, uh, side note, we did, I did write down notes while we were playing for questions that my friends wanted to ask you. So we'll see how uh, <laughs> crazy they are, because uh, I don't remember most of them after the conclusion of the night. <laughs> so uh, the basic... Pr- so he, this is... I always do this to myself. We have someone on on a game that <laughs> we're talking about, and I, I, I explain their game to our listeners while they're staring at me on a monitor. So if and when I say something that's wrong, please correct me. (laughs) Um, Or if I don't uh, do a great job at explaining it also, please feel free to step in. Um, So Fantastic Factories is you start with a, um, is it just, would you call like a general factory building? Uh, on your like tableau in front of you, it's just um, well, it's it's called the headquarters. It's kind headquarters, of headquarters, yeah. Your starting player board that you can get really like basic um, resources from. Okay, perfect. <clears throat> uh, so you start with your headquarters, and you start with four blueprint cards, two metal, and an energy. I believe it could be it could be vice versa. It's three <laughs> materials. Uh, what, 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 yeah, one metal, two energy. Thank you, the energy. <laughs> Uh, this is gonna. I don't know why I do this to myself. Uh, you set up the table. In the middle of the table, you have two decks. You have uh, contractors and you have blueprints. And you lay out four of each randomly on the table. After you lay out your four contractors, you're going to take these tokens that come in the game that, re- that have symbols representing um, specific, well, not specific, general building types. Um, and the symbols are like tool-related, uh, I believe a spade, a wrench, um, and I'm blanking on the other two. Uh, but the, they represent the yeah. buildings. Good. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, <laughs> there's, tell the, me yeah there's a gear and there's a mallet as well. Okay. Yeah, a gear and a mallet. <clears throat> so those represent the building types. And on your building, on your blueprints are the building you can build. Uh, so it'll give you a symbol and it will give you the required material as well. So metal and energy and it'll give you a number on there. And your goal of the game is to build 10 blueprints, which starts end of game, or collect 12, and I want to say gold, but I know it isn't gold. They're, they're goods, like manufactured goods. goods. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes, and that, that's how you start end game. And after end game is started, you complete one more turn afterwards. Uh, so everyone kind of gets a chance to catch up. What I for what we do on the shows, I when I explain a game, I try to explain um, a game that someone else may have played that it may be similar to. So, for me, when when I'm setting up my factory area, it reminds me of the city building in Everdell because you're acquiring cards that go in front of you where you can sometimes use the resource on that card or put a worker on that card to uh, enhance your um, whatever you're looking to get materials or um, um, points. The reason why I say that is after you do the first phase of the game, which is the market phase, I believe uh, you're you on your first turn, you can either uh, take a blueprint for free from the four blueprints showing or pay the resource costs that is above the worker cards, the, the contractor cards on the table, 
and take that contractor and use its effects immediately unless it tells you to kind of hang out until the end of your turn. Uh, and the reason why I should have mentioned when you put those icons out for um, the tools, those stay put, but the contractors change as you draw them. So you might not always be able to get the contractors you want because either you don't have the resources to spend to get them or you may not want to spend that resource because when you build a blueprint, you also have to discard the same um, building cost logo on it. So if you had a wrench building that you wanted to build and it cost two metal and three energy, you also have to discard another wrench icon from your hand, uh, which is important too because you do have a hand limit. You also have a resource limit, which I believe was 12. And I didn't think we were going to hit that right away, but the, the longer we played the game, we definitely saw that coming up more often where you don't necessarily always have the opportunity to spend your resources. Uh, so that was a good challenge, I think. And the second round is the um, the worker phase. Uh, yeah, the, the work phase, yeah. Work phase. So you have... Uh, when you start the game, you start the game with a set of four dice, and they're all laid out by color. So you pick what you would consider your meeple color, essentially, and you get four dice. In the work phase, you roll your dice, and now you're using them um, as, well, resource creators, if you will. So on your um, headquarters, you have three different tiers, and you also have slots for your dice to go into those tiers. And each one produces different things. So the top one produces blueprint cards. The second one produces energy. And the third one produces metal. For the top card, for the top slot, you can put any number on your dice into the top to get a blueprint. We, we almost messed up by having my buddy put a five, thinking he gets five blueprints for the five die, which we luckily avoided that situation. But there is still a way to get five blueprints if you play your cards right or your workers right. Uh, the second one, you can only use a, a one, two, or a three die to produce energy. But if you use a two die, it produces two energy. Where the difference is on the bottom, you can only use a four, five, or six die. But a four still only produces one metal. So it's important to remember that as you're going through the game. Um, because I think it, it becomes so easy to play your turns that there's just this thing that takes over where you're like, okay, I did this. Now I'm taking this and then move along. So we kind of like in the rules, it says like, if it's your first time playing, uh, you can go, sim you should go simultaneously normally in the work phase. But the rules say like for your first couple rounds, take go, but go turn by turn. So everyone's paying attention to what they're doing. Um, so the reason why I said you could get more blueprints or any other cards really is uh, there's a cool um, rule. I don't mean to rhyme uh, where if you put matching dice in part of your um, in, in that section, you can do you can add more to whatever you're trying to build for resources. So if you put two ones in the blueprint section, you'll actually get an extra blueprint. If you put three ones, you'll actually, you get two extra blueprints. And that's the same for energy and metal as well. 
Um, so that has a nice um, bonus for doubles or, or triples when you're rolling. Uh, you also have a general supply of a uh, really cool, um, I don't know what type of die they are. They're, they're not just white die. They're like translucent white die. Oh, I can describe it like the frosted. Frosted white die. They're very cool looking. And those are a die that you can use that you can get from uh, buildings may provide you with a die or wor- or construction <coughs> workers may provide you with an extra die to use on your turn, which is nice for building um, that game up. Um, I'm going to go to my notes. Someone said it's similar to the game The Builders. Is, do you know to find that true? I've never heard of the game uh, and I'm unfamiliar. No, I, I've actually never heard of The Builders. I, I okay. think <laughs> I, I like that for people who are into the, the hobby, I guess, I like to describe it as a cross between Race for the Galaxy and Alien Frontiers. Okay. Um, I think Race is probably... A lot of people are familiar with Race, but uh, maybe less so with Dice uh, for Alien Frontiers. Alien Frontiers has that whole concept where you use dice as workers. Oh, nice. There's a game, um, Renegade Games has a game called Pie Town, which uses dice as um, workers as well, which I thought was was pretty cool. So it's very similar to that, I think, too, as far as that mechanism goes, which I, re- I think it's underutilized. So I, I was really happy to to have that in the game as we played. Uh, someone made a, a, a joke. <laughs> they didn't want me to ask you this, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> they said, why, why doesn't mining produce coal? Well, I mean, you can mine for a lot of things, right? Coal is one potential resource. Yes. Uh, I guess you could do ore, but like... Please don't ask him that. Please don't ask him. (laughs) So, Jill, I did ask him. Um, One comment that was made at the end, um, I think that we all agree on, was strategically, it was interesting that all players can see each other's points. Mm -hmm. And I think that that adds a very interesting um, point for strategy um, because you can't really, there's a lot of games where you're allowed to hide victory points or it's even encouraged. And I like that you, you know where you stand while you're playing and it's up to you to kind of focus on making the most out of your turn when you go. So I liked that it, it makes you think a little bit more before your turn instead of, assuming you have more victory points than someone else like you can literally know i'm behind and this is what i need to do to catch up you know that's that's interesting you point that out um because there's really a couple i feel i find there are a couple different kinds of players the kind that likes to know like count the points you know leading to the final round like how far behind am i um and like you said that those points are public knowledge and um, I've actually had people ask me, why not then have a score tracker where you can just see like where everyone's points are? And it, this kind of leads to like this, why well, I want to talk about like the second type of person who they're, they're just focused. They just want to build their engine. You know, they want to do their thing, run their engine. And that's where I found that the fun of the game is. At least that's where the design kind of led me. And once I introduced the scoring tracker, um, for even for people who weren't that competitive, they would just stare at the score tracker and they'd be like, oh, I'm behind. 
and they all <laughs> they would do is focus on like how how far behind they were yeah. rather than the fun part of just running their engine because i you know once i removed the tracker i had a lot of people were like oh you know even though i didn't win you know i had tons of fun just kind of chaining together all these different factories and so it's interesting to kind of see those different uh, mentalities when the score tracker was present or, or missing. And the thing also is like having the score being so visible, it, it definitely, it's a very strong feedback loop where you know if you're doing well. In some games, I feel like they're very point salady, where you're like, well, it doesn't matter what I do, I score points. Yeah. I can't tell if I'm actually doing better than someone else. Uh, in in, fat- in fat- ah, Fantastic Factories, it's very pure in the sense that like you're if you're making points you're making points if you're doing resources you're making resources and um you had to be very intentional about kind of what you're doing in order to accomplish your goal and so that's also kind of why like there are no hidden points in the sense that you know you can't tell how well you're doing so it really encourages you to play the game multiple times and kind of master it because you can really tell how you're doing compared to other players. Yeah. It, and what's funny about our comment is it came after we were done because the scoring did not work out the way we all thought it was going to work out. We like, I thought I was winning. My buddy thought he was winning and our friend, uh, who thinks that <laughs> you should just be mining coal, uh, had, <laughs> had all these beacons out that we didn't even pay attention to. Hmm. And she, and the, and the way the beacons work is the more you have, the more points you're generating uh, for the end game. And she ran away with it at the end. We weren't even close to to catching her. So um, it does require, it, while the points are visible to everyone, it does require more attention to what everyone's doing than just yourself as well. And you can't just look at the energy that's being produced that's on the table because that's not always the case at the end of the game. Yeah, um, beacon beacon's one of those things that you really do have to pay attention to because if they build them all, there's uh it's it's hard to not win the game when you've built all the beacons. Yeah. And so and I don't <clears throat> yeah. Something we didn't mention was uh, that I didn't mention was with the um table laid out, you also on your turn have the option to spend a resource to clear a row um mm-hmm. on the table and draw four new cards and, and we definitely didn't utilize that enough until the end near the end of the game where if I saw beacons out I would have been clearing those out of my turn if I could when I could because um that definitely adds a little bit more strategy to it as well. Um all that being said, as terribly as I described it, uh we really had a, a great time playing it. Um it was a lot of fun and uh I I love the graphic design. I love how it looks. I like the design of the cards. Um, it's just, I don't know what, I can't like necessarily tell you specifically what it is, but it feels not for, like familiar or comfortable. Like I like how the game, um, the, the look makes me feel more comfortable playing it. It sounds really weird for me to say. But there's something about it that I can't put my finger on that I really hmm. enjoy about it. Like accessible, maybe, or like, or very. I don't. I don't know. I guess it's hard. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a. I don't have a good definition. <clears throat> um, the, but I would say this: there's a lot of games that Kyle and I play that 
uh, we would not introduce to our friends and family because um, while, uh, you know, just a lot of board games are like that. They're, they're not um, super easily accessible without playing them a few times. I really feel like this is a game uh, very similar to like the Century series of games where I would be very comfortable introducing this to casual gamers, um, even my folks at like Thanksgiving. Um, I really, I, th- I think this is very accessible to people. So, so I really enjoyed it to say that again. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely one of, one of the design goals of, of the game. I think, I mean, it's getting, getting a little bit into like how the game was created, but like, <clears throat> have, have you played Race for the Galaxy? I ha- it's on my short list of games, but I have not played it. But so like, I really love the rate, the engine building of Race for the Galaxy, but, um, it's funny, it's just a card game with a few, like, chipboard bits. But the boxes, you know, it's about the same size as, like, Carcassonne box, I think. And the only reason why it's that big, besides retail presence, is that the player aid is that big. <laughs> and it's on both sides. And basically, I couldn't get anyone to play the game with me because it was too complex. The learning curve is too steep. You really have to play it two or three times before you can really play the game. And so... I was like, but there, there's a whole host of people who are just missing out on this awesome experience because of just how how many icons there are in the game, and so that was kind of one of the goals for Fantastic Factories. Nice. I should mention it might come, it'll probably come up uh, when we're grilling you with questions, but uh, the game does come uh, with a solo mode, uh, and I think that that is also underutilized in board games. So that was nice to see. Awesome. Josh, any other games you've been playing on your tabletop? No. Gloomy of a Night coming up soon. Stay tuned. (laughs) All right. So for me, the only thing that I've been playing is Wingspan, which I know we have talked about on the show before. Specifically, Josh has talked about it. I finally got it to the table. Hooray. Uh, Hooray. I know, right? Only (laughs) one of those people who pre-ordered the game. I got it right away, but I haven't played it until now. I feel like I was making some mistakes in there. Uh, But the reason that... uh, I was prompted to play it as I also got the expansion. So I did get the European expansion. Um, so that receiving that in the mail, I decided I probably should get the base game played. Uh, so we've talked about it before. Joseph, have you played Wingspan? I have. Um, it's I've played it two or three times now, I think. What are your thoughts on Wingspan? Because I could talk about it when I talk about the expansion in a couple of weeks, but I'd love to hear what your <laughs> thoughts on the game are. Yeah, I mean, it's a solid engine building game with a really unique theme. Like they really leaned into that whole bird theme is really cool because you get to see all the different kinds little facts and like the wingspans the literal wingspans of each bird and they tie it into the game as well mechanically so um it's 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 a very quick and easy kind of uh, engine builder and i think with all the different kinds of cards there's a bit of replay value as well yeah, I, as someone who enjoys engine building games, and I, I'm sorry to say I was not a backer of Fantastic Factory, so I don't have it yet. But <laughs> one of my questions later is going to be how to get it, if because that's the thing I ran into a, an issue with. But anyway, <laughs> uh, one of the big things uh, about Wingspan that I thought was impressive is uh, the amount of variety there is, and that uh, you know, like I said, as a fan of engine building games. <clears throat> you kind of discover, oh, I can kind of build something like this. So now next time I play, I have this strategy in mind, but there's so many cards that, oh no, that one strategy I thought of 
is not even viable based off of all of the different cards because of all of the different birds that I'm seeing now. So it really rewards your ability to be flexible, to think on your feet while you're playing the game. And I'm sure if you played it enough, you could probably start to develop some general strategies of what you should do. But I was really impressed with uh, the depth of strategy that's there in a game that is still very approachable, though. That it's very easy, you know, once you open everything up and you're looking at everything, it seems a bit intimidating because there's lots of stuff. But once you start playing, uh, it is one of those pretty elegant designs that's uh, pretty straightforward, easy to understand, very easy to teach. Um, and then it's just really starting to kind of get into the nitty gritty and understanding the mechanics, how all the different birds work, how they interact with one another, uh, and starting to discover, you know, what those good combinations are for yourself. So we'll talk about it more when I talk about the expansion in a couple of weeks once I get that to the table. But obviously, you know, Wingspan, one of the big games of the year. Uh, Josh loves it. Thumbs up for me. Sounds like Joseph enjoys it as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing I'm really excited about is that now Stonemaier Games has broke, broken through like with this unconventional theme. I'm excited to see what other like interesting themes that other publishers are going to come to come to the market with. Yeah, it, it absolutely. Brought, it, it's so crazy to look at Wingspan and the new audience it brought into game board gaming that i think has been insane to watch this whole subset of hobbyists coming into a new hobby um it, it's bizarre and exciting and and uh seeing like jamie bring copies to like audubon societies and donating it i think that's really cool yeah absolutely definitely all right, so that's kind of what we've been playing on our tabletop. Uh, Joseph, have you been playing anything on your television or computer monitor if you're a PC gamer? Uh, yeah, I well, actually, it's funny. My PC is connected to my television, so it's kind of one and the oh. same. Nice. Uh, I, these days, I play everything on the gamepad, almost everything. Um, I, I'll be honest, I haven't had a ton of time, but the, the, the three things I've been playing is... Uh, Killer Queen Black, which um, I don't know if you're familiar, it's actually a a port from an arcade machine. It's actually five v five arcade cabinets, but they've translated the four v four on Switch and Steam. Um, playing a little bit of that, uh, and then uh, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually usually played at work. <laughs> Luckily, uh, <laughs> after work, sometimes I play with some coworkers. And then uh, Slay the Spire, which is a single-player, digital-only, roguelite deck builder. <laughs> I know, it's a lot of, a lot of things yeah. rolled into one. And, man, Slay the Spire. I, I don't know what it took. took uh, I was late to the game. This game's been out for, I don't know, like a year or two now. But it finally got into it. I think the reason why it's so hesitant is because it's a, it's a roguelike game. And... I usually don't like roguelikes because I like to have that sense of progression and that progression to like persist. Um, there, it does a good job of like having some of those elements, but like really, it's just like any. I, I guess I just love engine building games because like it's a deck builder where, you, but it's like engine builder where you just accumulating all these cards that just interact in different ways. And so, how the game works is you play a particular class and you're, uh, I guess, ascending the spire. You're encountering um enemies and your deck is full of these various attacks and defense cards and then later you unlock things like um debuffs or or ways to 
um, hit multiple enemies or just like uh, gain extra action points each turn. And as you play, you unlock more cards that you can add to your card pool. Um, so I, I, uh, at first, you kind of unlock more cards that unlock more interesting, more complex decks that you can, or deck archetypes that you can build. And so there's a lot of replay value there. And there are three different classes that all play very distinctly. Um, so this is this challenge of just ascending the spire. Um, and every time you can just play in a different way, uh, lean into like the poison strategy or the shiv strategy or the, uh, it just, um, I, I don't know how many hours I've sunk into it. Last night I was playing for like four hours until 3 a.m. So, oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it's one of those things I have to be careful. If I've got like actual stuff to do, I have to not get started or otherwise I lose my entire night. Kyle and I are on the naughty list. Uh, <laughs> I am not on the naughty list. Have you played I it? have played Slay the Spire. Oh, I'm on, I talked I'm about on the it naughty list. <laughs> at the beginning of the year. I love Slay the Spire. I think it's great. Yeah. It's probably going to be my top five games of the year. Uh, yeah, so that's on Josh, me. on the other hand. I own it. I own it on PlayStation because Kyle bought it and we're game share partners. I own it on the Xbox because it's on Game Pass. And I own it on the PC because it came in a humble bundle and I still haven't played it. <laughs> you know, if they ever put it on a mobile format like a Android or or Switch, well, I don't own a Switch, but maybe I'll buy a Switch if they release on Switch. That, it's on Switch. It is? Yeah, it's on Switch. <laughs> okay. You know, that just might, that's might end my productivity for the year. So, I, but, yeah. good thing I don't own a Switch yet then. <clears throat> Uh, okay, so then it's on me. Our listener who reached out to us about having you on, he's a big... He was he sent you a question on Twitter, uh, Splig, as we affectionately call him. He's been getting on me to play Slay the Spire for months now. And I said, yeah, I'll get to it. I'm, I swear. It sounds great. I'll get to it. <laughs> I will say real quick, uh, one thing I appreciate about Splig is that he talks about remote play so much with it. Uh, I actually pulled out my Vita and I'm charging my Vita as we speak just so I can remote play some Slay of the Spire from my PS4 when I go to bed tonight. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a game that doesn't need like fast reaction times or anything since it's a deck builder, so it's kind of great for that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, w- I really hope it comes to Apple Arcade. I feel like it'd be a great fit there because you don't have to worry about microtransactions, so I think it'd be an excellent fit on Apple Arcade. But, sorry, Josh, I did not mean to steal your thunder. Continue on, sir. What have you been playing? No, no, that's okay. Um, I'll just briefly talk about, um, speaking of playing games on, on a mobile device or something. Uh, so I'm in the project X cloud beta, uh, for Microsoft. Uh, we talked about it briefly. Um, Joseph, are you, are you familiar with project X cloud at all? No. Is that like Microsoft's version of Google Stadium? Yes, exactly. So, um, it, they, it's in a preview, beta preview right now. They're, they've been rolling out more invites. Uh, essentially, you have two options when you're in the program. You can do console streaming, which means as long as you're on the same Wi-Fi network as your, as your console, you can play on your phone um, with your Xbox on. And you can play any game you own in your library uh, over your phone via the cloud-ish. Um but Project X Cloud, um, as it's known in its own like subcategory, is Microsoft's allowance for you to play any game uh, that you potentially own wherever you are 
whether you're near your Xbox or not, as long as you have Wi-Fi. Uh, it will still sign you out of your console, which I found out last night, showing it off to people. My wife was watching Disney Plus, and I <laughs> kicked her off uh, from miles away. Um, when the preview ring started, it was only four four games. Killer Instinct, Gears of War 5, um, Halo 5, and something else. I don't know why sea I'm Sea of Thieves? Sea of Thieves, thank you. Um, but when Microsoft had their big conference uh, a week ago, they added 50 games to the uh, this list now. So on my phone, because I'm in the preview, I don't have to own the game. They're letting you just have full access. I now have 53 games on my phone that I can play anywhere I want. And yesterday, <laughs> I tested it out. I used the PlayStation 4 controller to play... A Microsoft Xbox game on xCloud. <laughs> so it was a weird moment because <laughs> the buttons aren't the, right. <laughs> what does the touchpad do? On the PlayStation thing? I, I don't think it does anything. It, it probably pauses oh, the game. I'm not sure that I even tried it. Oh, that's what I want to know right away. Is the, the, Does the map button work? I'll let you know. I'll try it tonight. <laughs> um, so, uh, so far, so good. It, it runs better than you think it would. Uh, it runs so well. Um, Which game did you play? We played yesterday. I showed off Ace Combat 7, Madden 20, and Tekken 7. Just to kind of get the differences in the types of games um, as far as uh, play style. Um, the, the only problem, so I have a Google Pixel 3a, so it's kind of a small screen. Really, I think this is built for tablets. Um, but to have the option, like a game like say the Spire, probably would be fine on the phone. Um, even Killer Instinct is fine on the phone. But I also tried playing. So I'll talk about Stadia now. So I also have Google Stadia. I got the Founders um, edition. They sent the consoles out, but the day they sent the consoles out, they gave you your code so you could activate the actual thing, so you don't have to wait for it to show up. So I played Destiny Two on my phone with the code uh and it ran great it was awesome the only problem is you're playing a shooter on your phone you're you don't have that great field of view like that you're used to so everything feels so tiny uh and it's tough so i set up this morning i set up my stadia and my chromecast because it, it comes with a chromecast uh, ultra so i set that up i hardwired the chromecast so it's running to my to my router Set up my controller. Uh, for me, the controller, the analog sticks are in the wrong spot, but PlayStation people will love it. Uh, Your hands are symmetrical. <laughs> Your hands are symmetrical. It's just, it's just not right. Um, but what I experienced today with the Founders Pack, you get Samurai Showdown complete and Destiny Two all the expansions. So I did Samurai Showdown. Uh, on my on my TV in 4K in HDR, it ran very well. I, I I did Destiny though, and the problem I had was I couldn't tell there was some input lag, or there was some audio lag, or both, and I couldn't tell what I was experiencing. Is it that I'm pulling the trigger and shooting, and the audio's off, or is the shot off? And I just I couldn't figure it out. And it was so minuscule, like my wife was watching me and she goes, well, when I hear you click the trigger, I also hear the bullet. And I'm like, I know, 
I'm going to sound like a game snob, but it's like like four milliseconds off. <laughs> and it's just noticeable to me. Uh, so it was a bummer. <laughs> well, Destiny's an online game as well, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, so that could be why it's... The further, different. even more complication there. This yeah. <laughs> even another leg of the journey to travel. That's a good point. It does look very good. I'll give it that. Um, however, Destiny, in my experience, has always struggled with HDR. On, oh, it seems to be the only game that struggles with HDR, so the so the brightness is still off. But I can live with that. Um, and then, real quick, I'm just gonna. I've been dominating too much time. <laughs> I've uh, wrapped up, so to speak, uh, Star Wars Jedi: Fallen Order. Um, story is complete. Uh, for people who are curious, I 100 did one planet, and every other planet's above 90. Uh, so I really took the time to do all like the the seeking and the hunting. What I'll say as a Star Wars fan, so I never watched the the Clone Wars series, and I didn't watch Rebels. Um, but from everything I learned in the story. It sounds like there's a lot of crossover with characters. And I feel like um, from what I was um, not aware of, it probably enhances uh, the player's story aspect more than mine. If you're familiar with, I want to say it's Clone Wars, but I always confuse the timeline between Clone Wars and Rebels. But the main character you play as Cal Kestis and... His master is someone I recognized right away from one of those series, but I really had no clue as to who he was, if that makes sense. So, it's finished. Uh, I thought the story was incredible. Uh, We have to obviously wait a little bit longer to talk spoilers, so I won't spoil it for anybody, but there's a pretty great conclusion to the game. And uh, I just really liked how they handled uh, the storytelling and the level design is, while it can be frustrating to some people, it's like um, an ant colony. That it's There's so many different crevices and they, they turn this small area of a planet into feeling much bigger than it really is because there's so many different ways to go and a lot of lots of different paths that are blocked off until you're ready to do them and and that's another thing i liked your progression in the game they never give you too many things at once so you're not learning four force abilities at one time you're learning an ability and then it takes you a few hours before you even get close to learning a new ability so you master each one as you get them um and i thought that was very well done um, in this game, we call Dark Souls Uncharted. <laughs> awesome. Anything else you've been playing, Josh? No. Yes and no. That's all I'm going to talk about. <laughs> okay. Uh, Joseph, are you a Star Wars fan at all? Uh, as much as anyone is. I think I've seen all... I want to say I've seen all the movies, but I have not watched um, uh, Clone Wars, the, the, the series. Okay. Are you interested in playing this game at all? Does this game pique your interest in any way, shape, or form? After the description, it sounds interesting. But <laughs> that said, 
I probably won't get around to playing it just because there's so many other things. There's just so much out there. So, Right, I hear you. Uh, I have also been playing. I'm going to be very brief in my comments. My comments are also probably going to be the most negative of just about anybody you're going to hear talk about this game. <laughs> uh, mostly because it has been a buggy mess for me. I have It has been problematic, and I completely deleted the game and reinstalled it, still having pretty significant issues uh, with textures not loading, entire parts of maps not loading. Uh, there was a part where I was sliding down this ice because they, you have your cool little snowboarding sections, basically. <laughs> uh, and I was sliding down this ice, and the game just stopped. And for 30 seconds or 45 seconds, I heard the sliding sound. The music was there. Nothing loaded in front of me. And my character just stood there. Oh, no. <laughs> and then after about 45 seconds, everything popped in. And then the game started going again. And I had to make this jump that I didn't know was there because nothing was working in the game. Um, so I think my technical issues that I've had with this game have definitely colored my opinion on it. I will say, uh, Cal, the lead character, he is one of the most boring lead characters I can imagine <laughs> in a game. He is so boring. There is nothing interesting about him at all. Oh, I disagree, but that's okay. What? <laughs> he, what he, do you disagree? What is interesting about? He him? is boring at be- at the beginning, but that's because he doesn't know. He still doesn't really know who he is. Through the through the story, he has basically the Jedi amnesia. It's interesting because I feel like there's kind of like two ways to play out a story. Sometimes, as the main protagonist that you're playing, sometimes people want like a blank slate that you can kind of imprint yourself onto. Yeah. Whereas some mm-hmm. people want that character to be interesting out of the box. And yeah, that just describes you just nailed both of our opinions on it. Yeah, because <laughs> I like that he develops as a character, and he definitely is boring at the beginning because he's just a kid, and he has no he has no fight in this fight. He he literally is thrown into this giant thing, but he doesn't know how he fits into the piece until probably halfway through the game. And then he finally yeah. sees his, his value. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I feel like I've gotten to the point where he's supposed to start doing that. And I just don't feel like he has very much. I think trying to give him a personality would be very challenging. If you try to describe who he is as a character without saying his name, what he looks like, or what he does, like he has no personality. And I'm not saying that the acting, the voice acting is bad or anything like that. I just think the character is very bland. Okay. And that's... Re- I hear you. I I think he is the least interesting character of the entire game. <laughs> he starts off that way, yes. I okay. that's where and I haven't I'll finished it yet. <laughs> okay, I haven't finished it, so maybe it gets better. I'm sorry but you've the experienced the bugs because it... I didn't get. <laughs> I the only thing I had was at the very beginning of the game. I had a, a couple of texture issues where he was literally standing like in a rock on the ground, where they mm-hmm. just didn't like flesh out that that texture. But otherwise, I had no bugs. So that stinks that you ran into those. Hmm. Yeah. That's always a bummer. I think having issues like that can really turn you off from a game or the whole series. Like, I used to play every Assassin's Creed until (laughs) um, one set in, I forget what is one, uh, the one set in Paris, I think. Unity? Unity. I had the same issues. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I think I had just gotten a new PC, too, and I just couldn't run it. I was like, this is insane. And um, I don't know. I You know, I spent like $50, $60 on that and basically never got past the opening scene. 
yeah. and uh, haven't haven't played any of the subsequent ones yet either. So, yeah, I'm hoping I'm going to continue persevering through. I'm pretty deep into the game. I have gotten pretty far. I am. Uh, I've been to multiple planets multiple times. Okay. So I have. I am. I'm, I think I'm getting closest to the end. I think I have all the force powers at this point. <laughs> um, but we'll we'll see. Obviously, there could still be some surprises. So. I'll keep going there. The only other big game that I... Uh, and the reason I haven't played a ton of stuff is because I've been continuing to play Call of Duty multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at my hours the other day, and I'm already at about 40 hours, um, <laughs> which that's where all my gaming time has been going. Uh, I did also... I'm still plugging away at Death Stranding. The game is still super weird. Uh, it's still super interesting. That's about all I have to say about it. There are some things that are just really odd in that game. Uh, I definitely have to be in a certain mood to play it. Uh, usually what happens is I start playing Star Wars and then once the bugs get to me too much, I switch and I play Death Stranding. Can I, I want to so. say something about Death Stranding because I'm going to go back yeah. to it. Um, did you get, you You must have played it longer than me. There's a part in the game where you have like hemophage grenades. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're literally, you're putting your blood into grenades. Yeah. And you're throwing them at bad guys. Yeah. So they introduced so weird. they introduced this mechanic to me, and they only give you a certain amount, right? Right. So I'm going through, and I get to this part, and then the it starts raining, so I know bad things are going to happen. And I start using my grenades, and they're working, but all of a sudden, there's like a thousand bad guys around me. I know. And I could, and I was, I couldn't do anything. Yep. I ran out of things to do. So then. Yep. let's let's get weird with it the the black goo took took me and then a black goo whale jumped out of the black goo and it turned into a river that drug me down and then i died and then a giant hand crater was formed permanently on the map that i could no longer get to this safe building because there was a giant (laughs) hand crater on the ground and that's where I stopped, yeah. Kyle. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, man. It's a weird game. I will say, no matter all aside from what people think about it, and we'll and probably in the future talk about the game award nominations and all that good stuff. What I will say about this game is that encounters with BTs are still some of the most stressful moments I can remember in a game. Period. Sure, that when makes you sense. get into when you get into Timefall and you recognize that BTs are around and your little device starts flapping and the and the bb starts crying those moments are so stressful and i i think the hard part is i still don't know effectively how to navigate through those moments well uh and i think that's part of the reason that there's so much stress there and that you get into those is like i don't know what to do sometimes i I feel like i'm doing everything i'm supposed to i'm being super sneaky i'm holding my breath at the appropriate times walking a little bit and think ah the stress that is the tension that they build into that game, I think, is really masterfully done. Yes. So, yeah. But well, hopefully I'll have it finished by the time we talk about our games of the year. I don't know if I'm going to because there's a lot of stuff I want to get played still. Um, but it definitely is uh, a unique experience. I don't know if it's as good as other a lot of people say it is, but I also think it's better than people... Like, I think it's kind of in the middle of all of the opinions, to be honest. Sure. So... Um, all right, enough of this video game stuff. Let's get on. Let's move on to the topic of the show, and let's get to the really important things. We're really lucky to have Joseph on the show with us this week, so we're going to take some time to get to know him a bit, and then take some time to talk about his game, Fantastic Factory. So just to kind of start things off, sir, 
Joseph, why don't you just tell us about kind of how you got into gaming, your history with board games, maybe what some of your favorites are, just to understand you a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I first got into hobby gaming by like many people did through uh, Settlers of Catan. I think <clears throat> um, kind of late in college and like shortly after college, I had some roommates, someone owned a copy, and we just got to playing like at least two or three nights every week. And uh, it got to the point where um, a roommate of mine who was, was pretty competitive and, and, and analytical, we would actually just, since you can't play Catan with just two players, what we would do is instead we would set up a board and then we would spend half an hour discussing how four different players would, their optimal placement of the settlements would be. <laughs> We spent half an hour doing that, and then we tear it all down. <laughs> we set it all up again, and then do it all over again. Um, anyways, back back then when you bought a game, you would play it like 10, 20 times, which um can't say the same about these days, it feels like. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, after that, like, I think we graduated to, like, um, well, not so much graduated, but, like, you know, expanded to Dominion and also uh, Seven Wonders and and a few others as well. Um, some some of my favorite games these days to play are uh, kind of medium weight euros, I think, because that, that really, for me, uh, I really like the a little bit of crunchiness and um, games that you can kind of master as you play and repeat plays. Um, and I just it's just so hard to dedicate more than like two hours at a time to play any of the heavier stuff. <laughs> And then alternatively, I also like, I really like lighter party games like Just One or Skull, um, some of our, or, or even like, I guess Point Salad isn't necessarily like, a, I don't know if sure that was a relatively new release, but like, it's mm. not necessarily a party game, but like it's very accessible and like you bust it out in like 10, 20 minutes and get a game under the belt. Um, just because these days, uh, you know, like, you just want to play a quick game sometimes. I, I play at lunch at work sometimes. And just getting people into the hobby, those are always great games to have around and easy to pack into your bag as well. How is Skull? Cool. I wanted to ask about that. Oh, it's <laughs> we have this running joke in our design group. Skull is so good. It's like so perfect almost. Uh, when we design, so between like another design group, we're like, but is it better than Skull? And the answer is always no. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean you shouldn't go and like continue and publish it or whatever. But like it, um, so just to give some context about what the game actually is, um, it's er, everyone has um, I think three skulls and a and a sorry no three flowers and a skull, and everyone just goes around in a circle placing down these um, these well they're coasters but they could be cards or whatever face down so you're either hiding a flower or a skull and you you stack them up eventually someone starts bidding and they bid how many coasters they can flip before they hit a skull and um and it's really interesting because you based on the bids you get a sense of how many flowers people put down versus skulls but someone might be bluffing but if you bluff and you get you win the bid, you have to flip over your own stack first. And so if you put a skull in there, you've basically out of yourself and yeah. you, you lose one of the, your coasters. So it's just very like pure 
bidding and bluffing game. Uh, it's like as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's one of those games with like kind of that mind game aspect, and so it's just like in a in a way infinitely replayable. So, um, and the art on it is is gorgeous. It's just a very clean and elegant design that just it just has uh, a incredible replay value for how simple it is. Nice. Cool. Sorry for the tangent. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. Which game were we talking about now? Sorry. <laughs> Suddenly, this has become a big plug for Skull. <clears throat> so, how did you go then from being a board game player to board game designer? Um, so, it turns out anyone can be a game designer. Uh, <laughs> and well, how it really came about was I had a friend. Um, his name's Alan, and he, um, he's a very kind of creative project oriented guy and he you know in in seattle where i'm from uh it gets dark really early uh in the winter and stays dark (laughs) for a very long time and so like he he loves like playing sports and stuff but like during the winter you it's not really option so he likes to get together and like work on some kind of project and i think the previous year we had made led like uh jerseys so we could play soccer at night but then this this other year, we're like, oh, we should we could either like program some sort of app or video game, or we could design a board game. And um, the so it's a group of four of us, but three of us were software engineers, myself included. And we're like, we don't want to code, you know. Uh, we do it as our day job already. At least that's how I felt about it. And so I opted let's do a board game. So we got together. We like identified all the games that we we liked. Uh, decided what mechanics we would include, and we just kind of got together next week and they presented our prototypes and and played it, and that's kind of how I got started. Wow, <laughs> I th- I think that I I don't know why, but I'm just so taken aback by that answer of well, we needed something to do, yeah. So we so decided we to design a board game. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how you get into any hobby, right? You're like, yeah. well, it, that sounds interesting. Like we play we play board games, like. You know, I guess part of it was like we felt like we played enough board games, which, by the way, was not the case. But the, to get a sense of like what was good and what was bad, and like why can't we make a game that has all the good parts and none of the bad parts? Which um, it's it's easier to say than to actually do. So awesome! I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'll throw it to Josh, and he can kind of ask to his heart's content. Hmm. So, obviously, you have these other people that you're working with, and you decide that, hey, in our evenings, we're going to just design a game together. How many prototypes did you start with? Like, how did you get down to, I'm assuming, Fantastic Factories is what came as a result of this question mark? Yeah. So, each of us did make, at least three of us, I think we maybe have four of us, I forget whether we had three or four prototypes the following week. And um, I think that given that we had a fairly restrictive prompt, like we wanted dice, we wanted to place them on cards and different kinds of cards. Um, I think what it really came down to was like the version I had was the most playable, most balanced, I guess. So initially there was three. Um, and there were definitely a lot of similar concepts there overlapping. But what it really came down to was I was willing to continue to iterate on my version uh, week after week and uh, eventually that became kind of the the standout one and uh, we would get together to play test and uh, a lot of the design was that uh, decisions that I was making initially um, and I think 
it wasn't so much a lot of different prototypes except for the first three, but kind of a ever evolving one. Awesome. Nice. Uh, I got distracted because I was reading Kyle's questions and I saw the last one, which I find to be hilarious. So we'll ask that one at the end. Um, so yeah. So what's been the most surprising thing, uh, that you've come across while trying to get a game published and maybe like a sub question. What was it like to work uh, with Kickstarter on this uh, game? So I think the most surprising thing besides the fact that it was a lot of work (laughs) uh, (laughs) design. Well, sorry, I'll go over that first designing the game while being very, very difficult is probably only half the work or maybe less than half the work of publishing a game. Um, that's not to say that designing isn't hard work and designers uh, don't deserve credit, but publishing is just this whole other side of, of just like owning, operating a business, the logistics and all this stuff. I think once I'd finished, like I'm working on the expansion now, but before that it had been like maybe over a year and a half since I had designed, worked on any actual design work because I was handling all the publishing side of things. But the the other thing, just for designing a game and publishing, the thing I discovered was the, um, the active community, the board game community. I think before I started designing, it was basically, you know, just like a group of friends. We played board games in our houses, you know. But yeah. once you got to the point where, well, I've designed, I've played enough of my friends, what's the next step? And you really have to start seeking out other players and that forces you or rather like pushes you towards connecting with this community. So I discovered Playtest Northwest, which is a really great local organization um, uh, here in the Seattle area. And they provide uh, playtesting sessions with players and local uh, game shops around town. And I discovered this whole community of playtesters, of publishers, of designers. Um, and it's been very much a huge part of my life for the last two years now. Um, and all the people I've met, uh, all the encouragement, all the help, I think it's really interesting. This industry very much has this collaborative, helpful um, kind of philosophy and mentality. I think the saying is like, uh, rising tide floats all boats. And mm. I feel like in some communities you see are very cutthroat and competitive, and that's not the case with uh, creatives in the board game community. Um, like a lot of people, they'll post on these Facebook forums uh, that a lot of this discussion happens. Like, oh, should I copyright or patent my board game idea? Like, or get people to sign an NDA? And like, it's for all all of us indie publishers in the in the industry that it's just kind of ridiculous. Like you, yeah. You the problem is finding playtesters, not people stealing your idea, and um, and I and it's nice that we haven't gotten to that stage where like you have to be afraid of people stealing your ideas because it, the community is uh, close knit enough and and encouraging that any of this kind of thing gets called out like immediately, and so um, I think discovering that community is the biggest surprise from from working on a board game. Nice. And what what was the how did you get to Kickstarter? Did was that something you always planned on doing? Uh, how did that come about? <clears throat> That's uh, potentially a long story, but 
you know, it's one thing when you start working on a board game, you don't really know what you're doing with it at first. At least, at least, at least in my case, I didn't know, and I think most people don't know when they start. Because one thing leads to another, you're like, oh, this is actually fun, and people actually enjoy it. Um, and you really get down to a crossroads where there are really two the traditional or two main ways of getting a game to market. Uh, first of all, maybe you don't even want to get it to market. Maybe you're fine just playing with your friends. And that's, I think, a perfectly fine thing for people to want to do. Um, but for me, I wanted to, you know, spread the game out. I wanted to see, like, it on shelves. And you really have two choices. You can go to Kickstarter. Or the more traditional route is you find a publisher and you sign the design over them and they basically take control of all that and kind of do all that's necessary to bring it to market. And for a while, that was kind of what I was pursuing a little bit. Um, I had actually did, uh, I did a lot of the art myself. Um, and they always say like people, one piece of advice is don't, don't do the art until you know you're self-publishing. <laughs> but that that said, it's usually don't pay for the art. And right. since I was doing it myself, mostly just for fun, because, like, you know, it's a creative endeavor, and that's kind of my creative outlet. Um, but, you know, I, I think I grew attached to the game. It was kind of my baby. And there were good and bad parts of that, um, given that it wasn't my day job. It wasn't, like wasn't bad in that sense because you, you still want to you want to make sure you don't uh, run into any blind spots right which is why I, in my opinion if i had one piece of advice for any one who is running a kickstarter or a publishing company is have a partner because they will mm. they will give you that objectivity that extra opinion to tell you that idea is bad because when you ask your friends your family or whatever or even just people in public they're they're not going to say it to your face but if you have right. someone who has the vested interest as you, they're going to call you out on any bad ideas or anything that's just wrong. Um, and so, uh, sorry, back to what I was saying about pursuing publisher, the publisher, I was working with a publisher and we were kind of like going back and forth with like design changes and stuff that they wanted to see before they were willing to sign the game. And then I realized that if I signed the game to a publisher, I would, probably at some point have some kind of regret not because the mm -hmm. publisher is like acting maliciously but they will make a decision that i wouldn't be happy with and i mean it's their right because they they'll own the design the, the license for the design um and so at that point because i i viewed fantastic factories not only as a game design but a a whole package you know i talked about the the graphic design, the elegant aspect of trying to simplify the game, and I wanted that the artwork to evoke that, the graphic design to evoke that, and um, ultimately because I wanted to to kind of produce that thing end to end, it would require that we self publish, and it's it was kind of a big decision because uh, you know we, my co designer and I Justin. Uh, we like the creative aspects of creating games. So the design, the art direction, uh, and even design the components and stuff. But like the manufacturing and logistics are things that we were big unknowns. And we knew it was a lot of work and things that um, we weren't sure if we would enjoy. Um, so in order to maintain that creative control, we basically said, okay, we're willing to do these extra parts that we would have to do when we go to Kickstarter. 
Nice. Well, you kind of hit on it a little bit, but uh, can you tell us where where did the, where did Fantastic Factories come from? Like, where did the theme for this game uh, come out of? So when our when my group of, our group of friends met, um, we're actually designing it from mechanics first kind of perspective. So you know, there's different kinds of designers who theme first and mechanics first. We were definitely mechanics first, and a large the a lot of the mechanics were based off the experiences that we had with games we played. Um, so like I mentioned, for instance, Race for Galaxy, I really love the engine mm-hmm. building aspect, combining all these different cards to make things happen. And then really like the, uh, but I didn't like the complexity of the icons. And then I really liked Alien Frontiers with kind of the dice placement and kind of puzzly manipulation of the dice to try to get them the, the values you want. But the the turns at the end of the game get pretty long, and so we wanted something a little faster. So and then uh, we also borrowed some aspects of Seven Wonders in the sense that um, Seven Wonders is a game that scales really well up to seven players. It doesn't really mm. take that much more time, three players versus seven, because everyone's selecting cards at the same time. So we wanted to incorporate some aspect of like simultaneous play and and scaling the game uh, well with player counts as well. And so those are kind of our mechanical inclusions and like design goals. And that's kind of how it came together. Nice. A quick aside, as a point of shame, I always have to mention whenever anyone brings up Seven Wonders that my game group and I played that wrong for at least seven more years. (laughs) Like we thought you could just have multiple copies of each producing card. So we would have three gold mines and (laughs) four clay pits. (laughs) It was awful. And I have to bring it up every time someone mentions it because I don't feel like a real gamer. (laughs) Yeah. That's not the worst rules violation. I think Um, it seems like a pretty, I've made that mistake a few times as well. Although uh, it's funny. You mentioned like playing a game wrong. Like the first time I played risk, I played wrong because the person who taught us, just i don't know they they learn from like their family from their kids yeah. or for, for their brothers and and they were taught the wrong rules or who knows where it happened it's funny because board games are such like a almost like an oral tradition in this in the sense yeah especially some of these classics it's funny i attended a talk about um translating tabletop games into digital and one person was like, yeah, I get this all the time. People report bugs. They think they're bugs. But really what it was is they just learned the rule wrong. The app knows exactly what the rule is. Yeah. But the person was, that rule is so ingrained in their mind that they they thought what they saw was a bug in the game. And not, and not that they ever considered that. They just had the rule wrong. That's hilarious. I was say it's funny because there is a uh, thread on the board game Reddit that was all about house rules, <laughs> and basically everyone's house rules were just examples of them learning a game incorrectly, and then they just kept playing it incorrectly after they even learned the correct rule because that's just what they knew. So basically, every example was 
that. And I found it very hilarious. Like the number of people who didn't know in Pandemic that you divide out the, the cards into like four equal decks and put one Epidemic in each and then shuffle that individually and then stack them together. People are like, oh, yeah, you just shuffle them all together. And sometimes you just get four in a row. That's just the way it goes. <laughs> so it was it was very, very interesting. You know, house so, rules is the first step into board game design. You know, that's kind of the that, that gateway drug. You know, you start writing your own rules and eventually you've kind of designed your own game yeah that's i always have this overwhelming sense of dread when playing a game at a convention on an aisle where people are constantly walking by because i just i'm terrified of someone stopping looking at what we're playing and then being like hey uh you know you're doing that wrong right (laughs) and i'm like oh come on (laughs) okay aside that aside i'm gonna ask one more question for you i really want to leave the last question for kyle since he wrote it and i i love it um so how what is it like so fantastic factories it's backed it's successful you go through this what we see in kickstarter as this dreadful manufacturing process you get through it it gets into people's hands what has it been like hearing and and uh, seeing all these um, positive, strong reviews and and people talking this game up so much. Uh, it's really extremely rewarding and and validating because up until you launch a Kickstarter, you you don't really know like how well things will be received, and then after the Kickstarter, when it, uh, people actually start playing it, you don't you don't know what people what's going to come out of the woodwork because you could say the first week that the game is out it'll have been played more times than you've ever playtested the game, which is, like, crazy to think about. You put all this time and effort into, like, doing this, finding all the edge cases, and and if you kind of leave any gaps in the game, someone will discover it and and call it out, probably. And so it's been really amazing to see that it's been well-received. And a lot of the... There hasn't been any, like, huge surprises. I think I, I know, like going into the Kickstarter, I knew what the strengths of the game were and the weaknesses of the games are. And when the reviews came out, they kind of pinpointed all the things that I already knew about the game. And it's good to see that it's being accurately represented, if that makes sense. And Mm. that people are enjoying it for what it is and that it's, it's hit all the, the, the goals that I had from a game design perspective, you know, the simplicity, the approachability of the game and the the engine building goodness of it all. So I think, you know, I invested a lot of my last two years of my life kind of, or more than that, just like working on this project. And it's really cool. I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost addicting in a way. This like, I have a Google alert set up for whenever Fantastic Factors <laughs> mentioned. And just like seeing what kind of coverage there is and what people are saying. Um, but it really comes back to that, to that whole like, community aspect. You know, there's it's just a, such an encouraging community and and people are, are generous with their time and they really like to celebrate your wins. And so when someone wins, everyone feels like they're winning. So, um, so, so far, it's been a really great experience. Nice. Very cool. I- going to wrap up with just a few quick questions for you and then we'll kind of get things on here and get the show wrapped up real briefly you you know you're a board game publisher now so any desire to publish other folks games or or are we just going to be doing fantastic factories for a while 
Um, probably Fantastic Factories for a little bit. I actually have some desire, but uh, I'll have to convince Justin, my uh, other half of the the publishing company, that to consider other designs because here in Seattle we have a really strong game designer community. That's you're gonna see some really good games coming out of here in a very short time, and some have already. So like, I, and I think I feel like our shortage is that we don't have um, as many publishers here in seattle with a lot of game designers and a lot of like even like artistic uh sorry art um artists and graphic designers but not enough time to publish all these great games that really deserve um someone's time and, and care into it so maybe uh but for now um it is still our our uh side gig and so we'll be focusing on fantastic factories at least for the near future Gotcha. And I heard you had mentioned in there that uh, there's an expansion in the works. Is that accurate? Yep, that, that is true. Where it's in kind of rough design development phase right now. Gotcha. Uh, next question being, you know, getting into the hobby, there's there's a few people who are, you know, kind of the, those big personalities that everyone gets to know. How how was it seeing Tom Vassell dump all of the components of your game onto his game table and then talk so positively about his experience and even setting it up with, I had never really heard of this game. I've never heard of this publishing company. <laughs> I was a little nervous about all of this stuff. And then come out on the flip side and talk about how excellent your game is. What's that experience like? Oh, it was, it was like a dream. It's like, I think I may have replayed that video a few a few times back to back and like, uh, you know, definitely, yeah. I mean, Tom Vassell is probably the most or one of the most popular, you know, hobby board game reviews out there. And so it was in- incredible, I think. Uh, it-, it was actually kind of a surprise that he had released it so quickly because, you know, I, you know, I contacted him ahead of time and said, hey, can we send you our game? He's like, yeah, you can, you can do it, but just keep in mind we have a pretty long queue. And so I had actually sent it. I actually had the game air shipped from China because most of the games were on a boat traveling. Like it takes like a month or so. Uh, so I had air shipped and then I sent him a copy like right away thinking it would, you know, it'd be like a few months before he got around to it. But then he, it came out before backers even got the game. And it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it, um, and so it was. It was awesome. I I think it must have like caught his eye the the art style maybe. But um, and so it was really exciting and like I said, validating as well. Uh, to kind of have that coverage, and uh, and also just just last week as well. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. Rado, uh, Rado, mm-hmm. um, Rado reviewed the game as well and had a lot of positive things to say. And so kind of like hitting all those those big names is has been like really amazing and and uh it really does well for sales as well i remember when tom released well he released a couple things he released one uh i think he's he named fantastic factories as the the best new game that he played in september i think for the month of september and then he shortly after released a review and after that where we were seeing uh sales kind of shoot up uh day to day so that was really cool as well it's a real impact awesome so final thing we're going to do before we start wrapping up the show is why don't you just give us a 
quick, I don't want to say sales pitch, but if our listeners are listening and they're interested in the game or potentially interested in the game, who is this game for? Who would you recommend it for? And then what's the easiest way for them to get a copy at this point? Yeah, so it's kind of a gateway or gateway plus game. So it's pretty approachable. It's not no no real conflict. Um, the interaction between players is fairly light, but it really focuses on the puzzliness of engine building. So trying to figure out like, oh, where do I plug in these dice to get these resources that lets me activate this factory, which then lets me produce these goods and then build this card. And it's this kind of chain reaction puzzle. Like the whole, whole game is all about making you feel clever about f- discovering all these cool interactions. And so I think anyone who enjoys really pure like engine builders and who love rolling dice and seeing the like all these diff- discovering all these interactions between cards, I think Fantastic Factory is, is definitely for for those people. Um, and there's a there's a solo mode as well. It's one to five players. And um, so I think it it's a really good kind of entry level game for, and there's not to say that it's only for entry level. There's I think a lot of replayability. I may have played the game several hundred times and still like enjoying like the different interactions between the different factories. Awesome. And where's the easiest way, or oh. what is the best way to get a copy? Yeah. So uh, we've partnered with Deepwater Games to help. Uh, co-publish and find the game wider distribution uh if you go to fantasticfactories.com there's a link that leads to their web store uh f- i think for a very short while i'm not sure when they may be taking this down but we're offering free shipping um so you can order actually full msrp directly from the site but we're also getting into distribution gts is covering uh carrying the game for the holiday season and then in january february we'll have wider distribution so you will start seeing it um in game stores soon uh and in january february it should pretty much be um most hopefully kind of in most places are you guys gonna be at pax unplugged yep we will be unplugged i want to say our booth number is three nine three one I should remember this, but are you selling? Are you selling the game there too? Yep, we'll be selling. Yep, you can find uh, Pax and Plug. We'll have the promo cards there, there as well. So if you Ooh, buy, yeah, from us at the booth, either uh, the meta or the publishing company is called Meta Factory Games. Either through yeah. us or through Deep Water, you'll be able to get promos. And we're also selling some extra stuff too, like enamel pins. Nice. So Kyle, I'll send you the game, but I'm keeping the promo cards. <laughs> That's fine. That works. We can do that. That sounds great. All right, let's kind of start wrapping the show up here. Josh, I know we do have a couple email questions. you want to take us through those? We do. I see. Oh, yeah, I see two. They're both from Splig. <laughs> Ethopolicious on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> you kind of already answered this, but you can answer it for our listeners. Uh, his, his first question was Ironclad, Silent, or Defect? And I have to imagine that's a Slay the Spire question. <laughs> yep. That is Slay the Spire. Those are three different classes. Uh, so I find that I I perform best with Ironclad. I think um, he just has very strong skills, strong attacks, um, and I think I get too engrossed in just trying to build the dream deck. <laughs> uh, so like, which which defect and the silent uh, really lean into? I think I love playing silent though because they. Like just playing like infinite shivs or getting someone the enemy's poison counter up to a hundred is just like 
it's it's really fun. Um, but I also often get killed for trying to trying to go, do really aggressive, crazy deck builds. So I think I I perform best with Ironclad, but I think when I play Silent, it's really living the dream. Nice. Okay, Blake's second and last question uh, for a game. As streamlined as Fantastic Factories, how hard was it to keep it so and not add every seemingly good idea into the mix? So it really comes down to kind of a design philosophy. And it's interesting he phrased it in that way. uh, Keep it simple and not add a bunch of stuff. Because it actually happens the other way around. So we had all this stuff in it. Because, you know, when you first design, you kind of want to explore the space, see what's fun. So every idea was like thrown in. And basically what you do as a designer is you figure out what the fun of the game is, like which part of the game is the fun part. And then at least for me, it is design philosophy. What I do is then I strip away every little piece, every component or card or extra mechanic, especially the ones that add edge cases and extra rules, remove it from the game. And then you play it again. And then you're like, does that core fun still there? Does it still function? Do you still enjoy it in the same way as before uh and you just keep doing that until you can't remove any pieces anymore and that's kind of the final product product in a sense and so that's kind of how i go about designing my games is figuring out what that fun is and stripping away all the complexities and uh and edge cases and until you can still play the game nice awesome all right. Well, we are clearly a gaming podcast, but we do want to give you one recommendation, suggestion, or thing we are into that is helping us live a well-rounded life. Obviously, this isn't going to be something gaming-related, but just something that we are enjoying uh, or giving us that is giving our life a little bit of meaning outside of the gaming world. Joseph, as the guest, you have the option. You can go first, or you can listen to our recommendations and do yours at the end. Uh, I can go first because I don't think mine will be all that interesting probably because i i probably don't live a very well-rounded life unfortunately (laughs) i think right now almost everything is connected in some way to board games but uh i i do have a three-year-old toddler and he definitely takes up a lot of my time um but his thing i he's into board games right now i've been like you know showing him he's always interested in what i'm doing and so he has a bunch of his favorite board games and stuff too. But uh, just spending time with him is always a pleasure. And especially at three years, three years old, he can talk and communicate and follow basic instructions. So it's been, uh, I think, a really fun time. Um, and then when he goes to bed, we, my wife and I usually watch TV or movies and stuff. And uh, like we recently got Disney Plus, I think, like as pretty much half the, half the country has. <laughs> Uh, watched the first episode of Mandalorian, um, and then before that we were watching Into the Badlands, which is okay, yeah, like an AMC show. It's streaming on Netflix. Um, it's a little, a little cheesy, but the visuals and the martial arts and the, and the show and the world building is really cool. So I, uh, unfortunately, finished the third and last season of it, but uh, I really enjoyed the show for sure. Nice. Did you, are you have you only seen the first episode of The Mandalorian? Yeah, only the first episode so far. Okay. The the episode 3 is directed by the same woman who's directing the Obi-Wan series and it's a really strong showing um for what we might be seeing from Obi-Wan, so uh that's just a little 
uh, fun fact about episode three of the Mandalorian, <laughs> which was very good. Uh, for me, my my recommendation is one one the show that my wife and I love to watch uh, is Nailed It on Netflix, uh, hosted by Nicole Byer or Byers, uh, which is essentially a cooking show with people who are self-identified terrible cooks or bakers in this case, and it's mostly a show at, of of jokes at their expense. So it's all in good fun, and people know what they're signing up for. Um, this is Nailed It Holiday, Season 2, so this is just their holiday um, series. So I think this probably... I didn't look at the episode count, but it's probably between four and six episodes. Um, where we've only watched two episodes so far, and it's been awesome already. So it's always a great recommendation for me to give. I. I would say if you've never heard of it, just watch the first episode of the first season. And if you're not hooked, then you'll know for sure you can skip it. Um, <laughs> but the the whole time, the, the whole time I've been thinking about you saying how your three year old is into board games, and I, I'm just thinking of my two and a half year old who cannot follow a single instruction. So I I'm either really looking forward to that leap he's going to make when he becomes three <laughs> or uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to figure out <laughs> how to settle this kid down. <laughs> well, they, they grow so fast. Six months is a lifetime for them. Yeah, so, that's true. Uh, also like to be fair, my kid doesn't, he, he doesn't know all the rules. We just try to make up like, like when we play fantastic factories, all, all we do is he just rolls the dice and he puts them in the slots and then he puts a card okay. down. That's it, you know. <laughs> That's cool. I keep buying him board games. Like I have above his bookshelf, there's like six board games I bought. <laughs> so I'm like, one day we'll get to Cars, the board game. <laughs> I know the age says four plus, but we'll get there. <laughs> I could just envision you putting like Twilight Imperium up there or something like that. It's like, oh, we're honey, almost to that honey, point. Honey, it's for him. <laughs> I know yeah, it's expensive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, as the person without kids, I did the very adult thing this morning and I went and saw Frozen 2. <laughs> yep. Uh, it was funny because my partner got tickets for us today at 10.45 a.m. And I made the joke. I was like, so is like, do I have to have some random child sit with me? Like, is that what's going to happen for this movie at that time? And it was about 80% kids in this theater, but they were all really well behaved. Uh, I was really impressed, and had they not, it wouldn't have bothered me. Those kind of things don't. I know what I'm getting into going to a kid's movie on a Sunday, late Sunday morning. Uh, but it's good. If you are interested, if you like the first Frozen, you will likely like this one. Um, it deals with some themes that I did not expect uh, that are a little more adult than I was anticipating. But uh, well put together. It really is impressive when I watch Disney animation and I think back to what it used to be compared to where it is now. There are some scenes in this movie that are just so beautifully animated it really is quite masterful what they're able to do and the music is good there's a really awesome uh one of the characters who didn't really get to sing much in the first movie i don't want to spoil anything it's a really cool solo song that they do and it's done in a way that had me absolutely rolling it was great uh so i recommend frozen 2 if you have the opportunity to see it uh, like i said if you enjoyed the first i feel like you'll enjoy the second i don't know if it's quite on the same level but it is pretty solid. So with that, uh, Joseph Z. Chen, thank you again so much for being on the show. 
where can people keep up with you and everything you are doing? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active. Um, my handle is at Fan Factories. Um, and I also have a blog on Medium that I I occasionally write to you about my. So if you want to find out more about like my experience with designing, publishing, and uh, attending conventions and all that kind of stuff, you can find me there as well. Awesome. Josh, what do you say we wrap the show up? Let's do it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. In addition to finding us on Twitter and Instagram at Board with VG, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Board with VG. So feel free to give us a five-star rating over there. Also, if you want to communicate in the more long form or you're just not feeling social media, we have a beautiful, large, empty inbox at boardwithvg at gmail.com. So feel free to fill that guy up. Uh, we tag our stuff with hashtag board with Fiji. So please use that hashtag so we can see what you're up to. And whatever podcast service you're listening to us on, whether that is the Place on Video Games feed, the Dice Tower Network feed, or our very own standalone board with video games feed, we encourage you to give us a stellar rating. You can find me, as always, but now including Google Stadia. Xbox Live and PlayStation Network at Why So Serious. That's S I R R I U S. Kyle, where can they find you? So you can find me at all of the usual places Twitter, Instagram, PlayStation Network, Xbox Live, Board Game Geek, all at Psychocross, C Y C O C R O S S. As always, if you have suggestions for future topics, be sure to reach out to us on the social media because we want to talk about what you want to hear about. As a brief reminder, after this episode, we'll kind of be running into the end of year stuff and end of decade stuff. So prepare for lots of shows with lots of lists because everyone love loves lists. It's going to be great. I love lamb. And, re- <laughs> and lamb. And <laughs> lamb. And remember, everyone, whether it be board games or video games, never stop gaming.